Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. This morning, we are going to be concluding our sermon series that we've been in for the last several weeks. And if you have been with us, then you are already up to speed. But we've been in a sermon series entitled, Love Your dot, dot, dot. And we've talked about how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We've talked about how to love one another and all of the others. We've talked a little bit about how to love our story, kind of the highs and lows of it and the way that God redeems that. We've talked uh, about how to love our neighbor as ourself. In the last couple of weeks, we've spent talking about how to love our city, to love where God has us and to be there on purpose and to be there with purpose. And this morning, we're going to conclude um, our, our series with really the, I think, the most difficult message to preach in it, and one that honestly, I've kind of drugged my feet a little bit and stalled on, because we're going to talk about how to love your enemy, how to love your enemy. And I think that there are incredible challenges to this, that if we're honest, it's hard for us to love the people that we actually love. And then to take it a step further and to be challenged by Jesus' words to go beyond that and to see how Paul is going to encourage us to put it into praxis, man, it's, it's rough. And so, Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you. Lord, that you would give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear how you would challenge us personally this morning. Lord, just give us soft hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2003, I moved from Southern California to Colorado, and I landed in Lyons, Colorado. I moved out there to be a part of a a newly planted four-square church in Lyons, Colorado. And on arrival, I began to get involved in uh, the youth in our community, and I began to coach uh, at Lyons High School. I was invited to be part of the coaching staff for the Lyons High School football program. The program was a 1A school at that time, and I inherited some rivalries that I was unaware of that even existed up until that point. And one of our fiercest rivalries upon my arrival in Lyons, Colorado, was with Akron, Colorado, just down the road from here. And I didn't really have an idea of who Akron was or where they were, but I inherited this rivalry because I just kind of showed up and started being a part of that coaching program. And over the next seven years, that was one of our fiercest rivals. If you know about Akron High School, kind of during that time, they were kind of a a perennial powerhouse in 1A football. They won several state championships there. And in my time of coaching, I actually lost a state championship to them as a result of coaching at Lions High School. And as we would begin to get ready for that week, man, like everything changed. The coaching staff changed. The attitude of the players changed. And it was like we were going to war. Right? It was all like Band of Brothers stuff was coming out. We had Band of Brothers t-shirts on. It was like all of this stuff like, it's time to go and fight the enemy. Uh, and it was really interesting because it was, a, it was a fierce, fierce rivalry. 
and it was a challenging one for me because I actually had friends on that coaching staff in Akron who were four-score pastors as well. And so we were like rivals, but like we loved each other at camp, right? We were like rivals, but you know, we're both on Jesus's team. Like it put us kind of in an awkward type of a position, but it was a, it was a very fierce rivalry. And I remember seeing uh, how serious it was. Uh, for the team that I was an outsider coming to an insider on, how serious it was, how ingrained it was in our coaching staff and in our players. And when that game would come up on the calendar, there was nothing nice that was said about that place or those people. It was a very, very fierce rivalry. And when it comes to this idea of loving your enemy, we're going to look at this at length. Really, that, that word means to be in opposition to. To be in opposition to. And with Akron, it was just a sports rivalry. It was a high school rivalry. I'm sure some people carried it to deeper depths than what it was, but it was just a high school sports rivalry. But it seemed pretty real, and there was a lot of enmity in the preparation towards it. And each of us, each of us have people in our lives that we would put into the category of enemy. And I want you to think for just a moment before we move on, I want you to think about who, who is that for you? And there's a difference between like a friendly sports rivalry and an enemy. Like we need to, we need to be honest about that. Who would go into that category as somebody who has set themselves against you, because that's really the connotation that the word means. Who is that for you? Is it, is it a rival? Is it a coworker? Is it just kind of an antagonist in your life, somebody who you just know is kind of out to cause you harm or ill will? Is it a neighbor? Is it a bully at work or at school or in your sports teams? Is it an ex-spouse or an ex-romantic interest? Is it an estranged family member? What about a business competitor? What about somebody with an opposite political affiliation? Like, who would be in that category? And it, it gets quiet when we talk about this. Like when we sit in the presence of God and we allow ourselves to be like exposed to the Spirit of God, like it it gets quiet. Because we have these, like we have these people, we have these persons in our lives And sometimes we feel like the best thing that we can do with that, the most godly thing that we can do with that is to kind of maybe ignore it. But Jesus is going to challenge us to do more than that. And our our natural inclination is towards any number of emotional or visceral responses to those people. In fact, as you saw that person's face or as you spoke their voice under your breath, when you thought of what would represent them in your life, there was probably a, a, a sense, a visceral response within you. 
But any, any way that we would just kind of instinctually respond is, is probably not the one that Jesus suggests. And it's the most challenging of responses. And in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin there this morning. I think that Jesus makes arguably one of his more provocative public declarations. And Matthew chapter 5 is uh, found in the Sermon on the Mount, which extends over several chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. There's a whole uh, wealth of teaching content that Jesus does in one sitting. And really, any number of one of those things would be enough for somebody to say, ah, I've probably heard enough. It's in Interesting to me that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the crowd is still there because Jesus was saying some really hard things and some things that would have been unpopular. And in the context of Sermon on the Mount, I think this is arguably one of the most provocative. In verse 43, he says this. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And listen to me, that makes sense to us. Love lions, hate Akron. Substitute whatever your high school rivalry was or whatever your those people are. Like that makes sense to us. Love ours and hate theirs. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in this teaching, in this sitting, Like Jesus goes there. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. There's a couple things that are highlighted in this section as to what the motivation is behind that statement. He says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And he closes out just kind of the very simple short teaching on this with be perfect, therefore, in verse 48, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he draws our attention to this, that there is something about loving our enemy that demonstrates our right relationship with our heavenly Father. There's something about loving our enemy that is an expression of or a reflection of our right relationship with our Heavenly Father, that because we are children 
of God. Because he is our heavenly father, we will respond differently than the way that the world works. The world works is I love those who love me and I hate those who hate me. I love mine and I'm in opposition to yours. That whoever would set themselves against me, I will set myself against. But Jesus says to live differently. And this morning, we're going to look in Romans chapter 12 to answer the question, how? Because Jesus doesn't do that in this setting. He makes this provocative statement. The only action step you can take from this is to begin to pray for those who are actively persecuting you. But outside of that, Jesus doesn't give you any how-to. He doesn't give you action steps for the week. He just tells you to do it. And I love that in Romans chapter 12 that Paul gets very, very practical and gives some ways for you and I to do this. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not the only ways that we may be led by the Spirit of God or challenged by the Word of God to love those who are set against us, but it will be a helpful starting place this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go to Romans chapter 12 because Paul gets very practical with the application of this principle I would encourage you to read the whole of maybe Romans chapter 12 this week. Paul will talk a lot about how to love one another, how the the body of Christ and the church is supposed to interact with one another. But as we pick up the verses in the second part of the chapter, he's going to get very practical about how to love those who have set themselves in opposition to you in the way that we're supposed to look at them or the lens that we're supposed to use. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, we're going to start here. There's going to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of these. So if you're a note taker, you can write these down. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, as Paul moves into this section on practically loving those in opposition to us, he begins with this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is is good. That word sincere means that without hypocrisy, that would be another way that you could translate this from the Greek, that love must be without hypocrisy. And that Greek word isn't just like um, you say one thing and, and you didn't come through on it. I've, I've heard hypocrisy leveraged in, in really an inaccurate way, where if you were trying to be loving, but you came up a little bit short, people would call you a hypocrite for that. In fact, one of the biggest critiques of followers of Jesus in general, or the church at large would be that it's just full of hypocrites. And to some degree, that may be true in the framework of what they're thinking. Like we all fall short and we all need a savior. And then that's absolutely true and doesn't really change. But the word hypocrisy means to wear a mask. It came from Greek theater. It meant that you put on a mask and a facade and you pretended to be something that you weren't. And so when Paul is talking about love here, he says, love is to be done without a a fake mask, without a facade, without pretense. It's to be authentic, real. Love must be sincere. Here's the thing. If it's not sincere, it ceases to be love. It becomes less than. Now, it, might, it's, it still might be kind. It might be a degree of affection. 
It might have a nicety to it. But when we're talking about God's love, agape love, it ceases to be that when sincerity is not a part of it. And Paul begins there. Love with sincerity. Hate what is evil. And I want to draw your attention to this statement. Hate what is evil. It doesn't say hate those who do evil. We live in a world framework that makes people the summation of what they have done and has a hard time unmeshing a person's identity from their activity. And that is not to excuse people's activity And it's not to say that they're not culpable or responsible. It's not to give you that either. But if I could sidebar for just a moment, there is a reason why many of you have been saved but don't feel like you can walk in your salvation. There's a reason why many of you have been redeemed in Christ and called to his plans and purposes for your life, who have hesitated to take steps into it because you don't believe you can be that person, because you are still the summation of what you did. You're still the liar, you're still the addict, you're still the cheat, you're still the whatever it was of brokenness behind you, and you can't forgive yourself or move on from that. It's because the same system that we view others, we have a tendency to view ourselves. And those things, when Paul says to hate what is evil, it means to abhor it. There should be a a holy and righteous disgust for the things that are broken in opposition to the things of God, but there should be a deep and abiding love for the people who were created in his image, and we should be looking to rescue them the way that we were rescued. And that love with sincerity Uh, I'm spending more time on this than the other points this morning because if we don't get this right, you can't do the rest. You, You can't love your enemy. You can't love your neighbor. You can't love your spouse. Like you can't do those, those things well unless there's something of a deep work of God in us. To love with sincerity in this way where we are in opposition to the things that would set themselves against God and where we cling, where we cling to what is righteous. To love that way is going to require a genuine, deep work of God in your heart. Because he's the source of that type of love and you will not find it anywhere else and you cannot express it if you are disconnected from that source. And so when Jesus says to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. He's drawing a connection to that because you won't be able to love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you if you aren't first reconciled in that right relationship with the Lord and doing it out of a love that you are consistently receiving from him. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, John in his letter says this, this is how, we, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John's first letter, 1 John, it's really like a love letter. It's a letter of God's love and how to receive it, how to walk in it, how to love one another. And it's something where you have to receive in order to do that. If you're not receiving the love of God, you can't sincerely do this. If you're not walking in the love of God, if you're not abiding in that love, you won't be able to love your enemy. You could go out this morning and say, man, I'm going to do better this week. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you might even get to Tuesday. But it's unlikely. It's unlikely that you can do it unless you're receiving his love. Our hearts have to change, and then our lives can be lived out differently. And so, like, to, to love your enemy, listen to me, your heart is going to have to change. And that's not just surrendering your life and receiving salvation. Like, we want, like, the one and done. We love microwave ministry. But, man, what I'm finding in my life is that the places where I've had people who have set themselves against me, it's little heart change over and over and over every time I see them, every time I hear their name spoken, every time I'm reminded of that incident or that interaction, every time I have to go back and look at that place where I was hurt or where I was offended or where I was a victim, that it's every time I have to revisit that, I get a little bit more of God's love for that person and for that place because I'm drawing a, a, the Lord into that activity and I'm beginning to heal and become whole. Like, it's not, it's not like this. For love to be sincere, you've got to sincerely draw near the Lord time and time again, and you've got to do the deep, continual work of wrestling that place out. If you move down to verse 14, Paul begins to get practical. The first way that we are to love our enemy is to love with sincerity. We've got to go to God for the source of that type of love. But the second thing comes in verse 14. Paul says this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If you and I are going to learn how to love our enemy, to love those who have set themselves in opposition to us, we're going to have to learn how to speak well of our enemy. Talked a little bit about the importance of what you speak last week when we talked about how to love our city, to speak well of where we are, that if you want to see God moving and if you want to be a part of what God's doing in a place that you need to, to speak well and you need to speak life, Proverbs 18.21 says that the tongue has the power of life and death. In just a practical way, when it deals with people who are providing conflict in our life, who have set themselves against us, Proverbs 15, chapter one, or excuse me, 15, verse one, says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Like just really practical things in the way that we speak. We can speak uh, life or we can speak death, and the result is what we get. From it, And in, in, in Paul's uh, verse here, in verse 14, when he says, bless those who persecute you, that word bless is, it's a super challenging word because it's more than just like the hypocrisy of putting a veneer on saying, hey, have a nice day, you know? And then when they walk away, you speak whatever you really think under your breath. 
Like this word bless, it means to invoke a benediction. It means to like speak a blessing over, to, to prayerfully contend for good things to happen. That's a challenge. It means to speak well of. It means to speak praise of. When we were getting ready for rivalry week with Akron, there was never anything nice said in the locker room about the other team, about the other coaches, which is, again, challenging for me because I knew players and coaches on that other team that went to the Foursquare Church there. We were friends, and we had a friendly rivalry, but there was no friendly rivalry in kind of the rest of the grouping. And what was spoken was never something really, well, I worked for a boss in, um, in the trades for a number of years, and he never spoke well of anybody else. Nobody else's work was ever good enough. Nobody else knew as much as him. Nobody else accomplished. Nobody else had better product. Like, he, he was the best. And you know what I knew? I knew that wasn't true. Every time he spoke that out, it smelled like insecurity and arrogance kind of mixed together in this messed up brokenness. Bless those who persecute you. And man, that's a step. That's hard. You know, as a pastor, I sit with people in a lot of pain. I've walked people through a lot of situations where there is injustice and unrighteousness, deep hurt and pain and loss. But I can tell right away where somebody is and what they're wrestling with, with how they speak of whoever the other is. Whether it's a spouse or a family member or a coworker, whether it's a political leader who represents a sweeping ideology, like I I can tell right away because Jesus says that out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. And I can tell you, you have no love for those people if you can't speak anything good of them. So Paul moves from this idea of having a deep and abiding love to putting it into simple praxis. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And that's going to be a challenge for some of you. It's going to be a challenge for many of us to begin that type of a practice. And again, if you don't start with the Lord doing a deep work in you, there's no way it's getting out of your mouth. It's got to get into your heart first. In verse 17 of Romans chapter 12, he begins to move towards the way that we tend towards reciprocating offense towards ourselves and how to maybe break that cycle. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. A good way to translate this would be don't look to get even. Don't look to get even. It only repeats the cycle, and the cycle repeats until someone or something is broken. Like that's when it stops. When someone or something is broken. My freshman year of high school, I was playing soccer, and I was, uh, I, I was a defender. 
I would say that I was, um, violent is the wrong word, I was passionately physical as a bruising defender. And I remember playing in a tournament my freshman year, and one of my midfielders had gotten the ball and he spun away from a player, and the player turned and he just hacked him across the back of both of his legs. Kicked him right above the ankles, took his legs out, swept him out, and just crumpled him on the ground. And I did what you would expect any pastor to do, pre-pastor. I remembered that number. He wasn't carded. He wasn't reprimanded for it. We got the free kick, but there wasn't any, it, there wasn't any more justice dealt out. It felt like an injustice. It was absolutely wrong. It was reckless. And then it was an unatoned for in a way that set right with me. And so I just, I just remember the number. And I remember later in the game, the ball coming into that player, and I was coming with everything that I remembered. And I slid in, and, and I was a good physical defender. I knew how to do all of this inside of the rules and to do it clean, but that is not how I came in, and that was not my intention. I came in hard and reckless as I slid across the ground. I pulled my leg in and I kicked out as hard as I could at that young man's leg as he went to plant. And I had every, I had every intention of hurting him. And the way that God loves to teach me lessons is to turn my intentions back on myself. Because as I came in with that challenge to purposely hurt that player, he went and planted. He put all of his weight down on that foot and went to plant out of the way. And as I came in with my leg cocked and crammed it as hard as I could against his ankle, he had set himself and braced himself against that full force. And I left the game. I was out of the tournament because of the damage I did to my own self. When we look to get even, we just repeat the cycle until someone or something is broken. And sometimes we end up broken as the result. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. This isn't a blanket statement to encourage you to just go with the flow and do what society is suggesting. When you actually unpack this, what you come to understand is what he is telling us to do is to live our our faith demonstratively, to live in such a way, to live in such a way that an unbeliever can recognize that there's something different. Do what is right in the eyes of everyone, that even somebody who wouldn't have a moral grounding in Scripture, that even somebody who wouldn't have eyes of faith would be able to see the way that you live your faith so predominantly that they would be able to take note and recognize it. That even without the lens of Scripture or the lens of the Spirit, they would say, wow, that's different, and that looks different than anything else I've experienced in this world. That's what the challenge is here. To do that even with our enemies... Can I tell you something? The people that, that, that are opposed to you, and I believe that you all have those, the people in your life that would set themselves up against you or would even hate you, they know what it means to be hated already. 
They probably have other relational exchanges that are like that. People who hate know what it means to be hated. It is a paradigm shift to have your animosity met with grace. Like it, it's, it, it, it shakes your paradigm. Can you remember the moment? Can you remember the moment when you realized that God actually loved you? Can you remember the moment that you received salvation knowing that you couldn't earn it, that you didn't deserve it? Like, can you remember like that, that like awakening? It's transformative to be like, wait, wait a minute. Like, I understand God being mad at me because he should be. I understand God being wrathful towards me. I understand the idea of God being punitive because I know that I deserve all of that. But wait a minute. He loves me? And he sacrificed himself for me? Like, do, do you remember what that felt like? When you display that type of response to those who have set themselves against you, it creates those types of like, wait a minute, this is different. And that was, is what Paul's challenging us to do there. Verse 19, do not take revenge, or excuse me, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Contend for peace. I think Paul's a little pragmatic here because he says, as long as it depends on you, for your part, listen to me, for your part, be loving. For your part, extend forgiveness. And I am as pragmatic as Paul. There will be people who will never like you. They will never love you for who you are. They will never love you for your Jesus, whatever it is. But as far as it is up to you, live in peace. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Here's what the difference between getting even and getting revenge is. Getting even tries to make things even out. You punch me, I'm going to punch you. It, just, it creates a cycle until somebody's broke. Revenge escalates it. Okay, what revenge looks like is you punch me, so I'm going to hit you twice. Once because you punched me, and once because now you deserve a little bit more. You started it anyway. Like, it escalates it. It creates a vindication for me to inflict pain on you. Paul says, don't do that. Let the Lord be the one who judges. He alone should be in that seat. And last one, verse 21, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't respond to evil with evil. Don't respond to evil with evil. Don't be overcome by that. These are hard things to put into practice. These are hard things to try to balance out morally, ethically, spiritually, scripturally. These are challenges. Because if I'm not going to be overcome by evil, if I'm going to love what is sincere and hate 
or abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, then I I have to be able to stand for what's right. There has to be appropriate ways for me to position and posture myself to say no. Jesus isn't suggesting that in loving your enemies that you let yourself be victimized or you let others be victimized. And so there's challenges to how to do this. When and where do I speak? How do I exercise my power and influence? When do I flex? When do I respond in humility? And as varying as those responses are, are the circumstances that you and I find ourselves in. And so you have to go back to this. Can you start with love? There's a way to lovingly correct and lovingly defend. And then there's the way that we tend to do it. There's a way to love those in opposition to us. And then there's the way that we normally respond. To do this, to do this, we have to have the Lord do the work in us first and then be willing to meet people, to meet people again where they are. One of my favorite stories that comes out of my rivalry with Akron is one of my former players. And he was vocal. He was vocal in his enmity towards that school and rivalry. And two years after he graduated, his college roommate was a football player from Akron. And they played on the same college team together. And I remember him being back and visiting and being like, they're not so bad. (laughs) When we allow the Lord to bring us into right relationship with even those who are antagonists in our lives and allow him to do the deep work as long as it is up to us to respond in love and then to allow God to do the rest. Church family, if you would stand, we'll close this morning. Lord, in these next few moments, we make room for you to move in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we make room for you to challenge us Lord, it can be difficult enough for us to love those that we love, to love those who have demonstrated their love and affection towards us. So much more challenging to think about these. But God, you demonstrated how to do that. You demonstrated in yourself what that looks like, that when I was a sinner, when we were still dead in our sin, that you died for us. Lord, that you gave yourself for us. Jesus, your words here are deeply challenging and they're out of reach in our own strength and ability, but you demonstrated them. You're not asking us to do something that you weren't willing to do on our own behalf. Lord, you loved us when we were still in rebellious opposition to you. And God, I thank you for that. I'm reminded of that. I'm humbled by that. Lord, for my friends here today, as we began with the question of just who who would be in that enemy box for you? Who, Who is the one against you? Lord, for some of my friends, they saw a face immediately where there's present opposition and challenge. Lord, some of my friends were reminded of things that have happened to them. 
and those that were a part of inflicting that. Lord, some of my friends would have muttered that name under their breath and it would have had contempt. Lord, we, we have these as part of our lives. We have these people as part of our story. And God, we can't love them on our own. So we ask that you would give us your heart. Give us your heart, Lord, for even our enemies. Help us to receive your love, to receive your forgiveness, to extend it and to walk in it. And Lord, as very simple as it is to just begin to pray for that person or persons, that even in this quiet moment, we would begin to pray for them. Lord, do a deep and abiding work in us. Lord, as we close this series, give us a love ever deepening for you as our source. Lord, in our praxis, give us an ever reaching love for the people around us and the community that we're in. And Lord, let us contend. Let us contend for heaven on earth, right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Action steps for you this week are pretty simple. I encourage you to snap a picture of them or catch them online later on. Number one is begin to press into God's love for you. You can't give it if you're not receiving it, so start there. Number two, as you receive that love, look to share it with those around you. And then number three, begin to pray for those who you would consider have set themselves against you. Allow the Lord to begin to work something new in that place.